I really care about is can they see how these philosophical issues and concepts play out in the real world and can make their lives better by enabling them to critique points of view that they agree or disagree with. The Ethicist Corner, brought to you by the Kegley Institute of Ethics. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Ethicist Corner, a podcast in which we discuss ethics in everyday life. My guest today is Dr. Brianna Toole, who is an assistant professor of philosophy at Claremont McKenna College. Dr. Toole received her PhD from the University of Texas at Austin. And prior to her current appointment at Claremont McKenna, she held fellowships at both MIT and Baruch College, uh, which is in New York. Uh, Dr. Toole is also founder and director of the philosophy outreach program, Corrupt the Youth, which we will talk a little bit about later in our interview, excited for that. And her research explores how race and gender influence what we are in a position to know and the harms or forms of oppression that can result from failing to acknowledge the role of race and gender in uh, the ways in which we gain knowledge about ourselves and our world. Um, Dr. Toole, welcome to The Ethicist Corner. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. And so, Brianna, where, where are you from? And can you also talk to us a bit about your journey to a career in philosophy? Um, and I'm, I'm kind of curious about your, your journey there, right? Not the most tra traditional journey and kind of what, what led you to, to that path? Yeah, so I was born in Texas on a military base because both of my parents were military. Um, but we ended up relocating when I was about four to my dad's hometown of Sneeds, Florida. Uh, so that's where I grew up. That's where I went to school. Um, my dad's high school principal was my high school principal. His English teacher was my guidance counselor. His math teacher was my math teacher. Uh, so a super small town, I think eight, population of 1800, uh, predominantly white, um, very small working class. The main source of income was the state prison and the uh, state hospital located in the town over. And so to be honest, I did not grow up wanting to be a philosopher, largely because I didn't know that that was a thing one could be. Um, I wanted to be an attorney. That's what I saw on TV. And they were always defending the powerless and getting to arguments in court. And I love to argue. So that just seemed like the perfect job for me. But then I went off to college at Florida State University, which is in Tallahassee. It's about an hour west of Sneeds. And I was in the honors program. And as part of the honors program, they would have people from around the college come to speak to us once a week. So one day it might be someone from the social sciences department. And then the next week it'd be someone from the business school. Mm -hmm. um, so once they had someone come from the law school, a professor at the law school, and she said, if you want to do well on the LSAT, here are the three majors that perform the highest, philosophy, history, and English. And I'd already had plenty of English in high school, had also had more than enough of history, and so was not super eager to throw myself into that. Mm -hmm. But had not had much exposure to philosophy and thought it could be a really fun major to pursue. And just by complete accident, I ended up falling in love with that major in those classes and changing courses my senior year and deciding to apply to grad school instead of law school. With that, that path to philosophy, do you have kind of resistance to that in your life? I mean, were, were people, were your family and, and friends kind of supportive of that choice or? Oh no, they were happy to have me become a philosopher. <laughs> part of the reason I ask is, you know, I mean, obviously I, I, I studied philosophy too and took that path and I, I had, uh, I think, you know, my family anyway was mostly supportive of that choice, but 
as soon as you hear those stories, right, of people who, you know, what are you going to do with that? You know, what even is philosophy? Kind of philosophy has like a marketing problem, right? People don't know what it is. So it's kind of, you know, it, it, you know those challenges kind of face students. And I talk to my undergrads about this a lot too, about, you know, how you need to uh, both educate people about what philosophy is, but also just be clear about what your passions are, right? Yeah. Honestly, my parents still don't know what you're supposed to do with a philosophy degree. So yeah, right. <laughs> nothing has changed in the 10 years since I graduated from college. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, yeah, they were very confused, very perplexed, extremely worried. Uh, I think when you're raised by working class parents who themselves are not really college educated or have very limited exposure to college, um, they view college as a path forward, a path towards class advancement. And they could really obviously see that with law. Yeah. You know, you could become a lawyer. I could one day be a Supreme Court judge. There, there was the possibility of making lots of money and taking care of them in their old age. And that dissipated when I came home and said, hey, I've decided to be a philosophy major and to get a PhD. They suddenly, those beautiful hopes and dreams sort of faded away. Yeah. To the background. Well, the good news is, is you're, you know, you're, I mean, just, you know, you're killing it in professional philosophy as far as I'm concerned. I mean, you're doing some of the most creative, interesting work I see out there. Um, that's why I'm super excited to have you. And for those, our listeners who don't know um, Dr. Tool's work, uh, just, you're going to be able to hear some of it on October 15th when she gives a, a talk for the Kegley Institute via Zoom. And we'll talk about that talk a little bit more in a moment. But um, Brianna, I know kind of an area of your work is um, uh, broadly referred to as kind of standpoint epistemology. And I imagine a lot of people who aren't in philosophy, um, aren't working in this field, probably don't know what that term means. So can you say a bit about what the term standpoint epistemology means and, and why it matters? Yes, so standpoint epistemology, if I'm putting it in simple terms, is just the view that some features related to a person's social identity, so features like their sex or gender or class, uh, might make a difference to what that individual is in a position to know. Now, there's a really straightforward sense in which this is just obvious, right? If you, um, are raised by ornithologists, you're going to be brought up in a home where your parents are talking all the time about birds and how to distinguish birds based on their wingspan and their beak shape and their, the color of their plumage. And so you'll be in a position to know so much more than someone who isn't raised by ornithologists. And so I'm taking that really simple intuition and expanding the scope of it somewhat to say in much the same way, if you're brought up in a black family, you're going to have a much different experience with the world than someone who's raised in a white family. You will learn to be attentive to and to anticipate different facts about the world. And so you'll end up developing a sort of a different set of conceptual resources and a different knowledge base that mm -hmm. allows you to engage with the world. Mm -hmm. So this is interesting. So can you can you give an example maybe of uh, either say race or gender and um, maybe a kind of an example we face in the world where there might be differential understanding based on someone's social identity? So let me give uh, a really innocuous example first, because I think mm -hmm. whenever you talk about race or gender, people's alarm bells go off because right. it's right. so hard to have and so deeply personal. So when I teach, especially having lived in New York last year, the example that I like to use is of the subway system. So when I lived in New York, I lived in Bed-Stuy, but I worked at Baruch College, which is in Manhattan. So I had to take the bus, excuse me, the uh, subway from Brooklyn to Manhattan. It's about a 45 minute train ride. And my route was best 
done by switching trains three times. And in the whole year that I lived there, it never really occurred to me to stop and look around to see what kinds of bodies were in the subway. But when I did, I realized it's lots of able-bodied people. Mm -hmm. uh, lots of people who look like me and are very able of getting around physically without any impediments. And then a sort of uh, light bulb went off and I had this realization that, wait a second, uh, quite a few of the stations that I switch in don't have elevators. Which means that if you're physically disabled or if you've suffered an injury and are immobile for a bit, you actually can't get around the city. Now, as someone who's physically able, I don't have to stop and think about what it must be like to get around the city or whether the city is accessible because that's just not a problem for me. I don't see the world in that way because I never have to engage the world in that way. But if you're someone with a severe physical disability, if you're bound in a wheelchair or you're on crutches, you suddenly see what was visible the entire time but sort of obscured from view, which is that the subway system in the city of New York in general are not designed for people with physical limitations. Right, right. Uh, and so I like to give that example to make it clear that not noticing things that are right in front of you does not make you a bad person. It makes you a, a person who's been conditioned to see the world in a certain way. Right. That's really, that's a really helpful example. And so, yeah, I mean, so do you think that applies to things like some of the problems we're facing in really kind of uh, felt ways right now, like issues and concerns around police brutality, um, sexual harassment, um, other forms of discrimination? Do you think you're, the example you're giving about you know, the subways, does that track on to why some persons or people might be more or less able to recognize those problems or at least understand them initially? Um, how do you think that plays into some of these issues? I think it's pretty fundamental to understanding major conflicts and disagreements uh, that we're seeing currently about the extent to which COVID is dangerous, uh, to which police brutality is really an issue, uh, debates about whether we should defund and abolish the police turn on whether you think and to what extent you think police brutality is actually an issue. Um, and so in the same way that as a physically able person, I don't have to engage the world from the perspective of someone who's not physically able. If you are embodied as white or you are passably white and so you get those privileges, then it is very easy to think the issues of police brutality are blown up beyond proportion. Because from your point of view and given your experiences and given your engagement, it might be that you just don't have any evidence to suggest that police officers ever behave badly. And I think right. that's such a huge um, obstacle for many people who do have largely positive or no experiences with police officers at all. Mm -hmm. um, it becomes literally inconceivable of us that they could do what Black Americans are in fact saying happens in their communities all the time. So this was, yeah, this raises a, a couple questions for me. I mean, one, I'm wondering, you know, part of the problems that people say, you know, we're facing right now in our society, I, I don't, sometimes I don't know how new of a problem it is, but it certainly feels uh, more present and more visceral. This idea of like polarization, this idea of kind of like strong divisions on central political and community issues, policing issues included, um, uh, issues relating to uh, historical monument and statue removal, like, you know, we go on and on about these issues that we're debating, right, in our society right now. With, when you're talking about this idea that we, we know different things based on our different experiences, which is connected in some way to our social identities, say as, as man, woman, black, white, disabled, able-bodied, however we want to talk about that, is your, is your account like an optimistic one that we can actually 
talk across these differences so we can increase mutual understanding or should we feel more pessimistic? Like given we have different social identities, does that mean it's going to be very, very difficult for us to actually bridge differences to come to understanding across these identities? Um, how do you think about that? Because that's obviously a central need right now, right? For us to move forward as a society. I, uh, whether or not I am optimistic changes day to day. Right now, I am feeling optimistic. Um, for me, my husband says that I'm a solutions-oriented person. Uh, and I think that's true. And I definitely view standpoint epistemology as a solution to polarization. In part because I think before you can solve a problem, you need to understand how the problem manifests. So how it got started to begin with. And I think standpoint epistemology gives us the tools to see very clearly how someone might be completely isolated from the experiences of a marginalized group to the point that that group's claims seem untrustworthy or, or obviously false. Mm-hmm. And it does sort of give us an idea of where to make those changes. So for instance, returning to the example of disability, once it becomes clear to me that yes, I get to interact with the world in a much different way than someone with physical limitations might, then it becomes clear to me as well that when someone says, hey, God, the New York City subway system kind of discriminates against physically disabled people, it's no longer open to me to say, I disagree. I don't think anything's wrong with the subway system. I'm now in a position where I can say, yeah, okay, I noticed that. I see what you mean. I, I can imagine that if you're in a wheelchair or on crutches, it must be really painfully difficult to get around. Mm-hmm. And so it sort of enables us to, to acknowledge that there's evidence, which my social positioning gives me the privilege of not having to deal with. Right. And so, you know, that's, that's helpful. And so maybe is it, is it also maybe kind of the, the best of lights, it kind of maybe engenders uh, an epistemic humility also, kind of a recognition that your experience isn't necessarily mirrored by every other person in the society. There might be things that you don't have direct experience with, so maybe you need to kind of bracket your assertions or your assumption that you just fully understand what somebody else is experiencing and what they see in their world. Yes, absolutely. And I think a big issue that happens here is we live in a segregated society, which definitely enhances these problems and, and exacerbates these problems. Mm-hmm. Because if you're a white person in a white community and you think, gosh, maybe this police brutality thing is an issue, I should ask some folks. And then you ask everyone in your community and they all say, no, I th- every cop I've interacted with is wonderful, super helpful. Then you're, 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 it's almost like this echo chamber, right? The thing that Lynn writes about where you're assuming that those people are reliable people to ask about the experiences of police brutality. Mm-hmm. But if you've been exposed to standpoint epistemology and you know that we know about the world from an embodied point of view, then you're suddenly in a position to say, okay, these white folks that I live with are not the people that I should ask about police brutality because they're not the people who have likely had experiences with police brutality. Mm-hmm. I need to brown and black people who are more likely to have these experiences. And even if you don't think they have the experiences, at the very least, you know the right people to ask now. Right. So does this, this discussion that we're having relate to, um, I mean, a couple other concepts that you talk about. I know in your work, you talk about epistemic privilege and epistemic oppression. Um, and so I, I'm wondering if, if, if what we're talking about now, if it relates to those concepts in, in any specific way, or could you, could you talk a bit about what you mean by those and how, how we can understand them a bit better? Yes. So standpoint epistemology actually is a, 
a broad tent that includes three theses. The situated knowledge thesis, which is what I've been speaking about largely, so the idea that what we know depends on our situated perspective. The achievement thesis, which I largely set aside in my work, um, and the epistemic privilege thesis, which says that some situated perspectives are better or more objective or have some, some sort of epistemic advantage. Now, that's the most controversial claim the standpoint theorist defends, and it's the one that I'm really committed to defending in my work currently. Mm -hmm. uh, but yes, it's the idea that someone who is subject to oppression is an epistemic superior with respect to questions about that oppression. So if you want to know about discrimination in schools, you need to ask someone who's been discriminated against in schools, right. not superintendent, right? Who's not likely to have the experiences from the perspective of a student. Right. And so it, it is this acknowledgement that people who are placed in certain ways are just going to have much, much, much more information and much more accurate information about a certain state of affairs. Okay, that's helpful, thank you. Um, so on, on October 15th, uh, for the, the, the Kegley Institute of Ethics, you're going to be giving a talk titled, You Took the Words Right Out of My Mouth, Why Some Words Don't Belong to You, uh, which is a fantastic title. I've had actually a, a lot of people ask me about it. They're intrigued by the title alone. Okay. So can, 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 you, can you talk to, to us about, um, uh, maybe give us a, a teaser on, on what you're planning on, on talking about um, uh, that evening? Yes. So um, I think that there are some words some bits of language, some slogans that are created for us by us, so fubu. Okay? <laughs> and those words have a special place within our communities and should not be taken by people outside of the community. So basically what I'm going to be discussing is what I call hermeneutical theft or conceptual or rhetorical theft. Mm -hmm. So when marginalized communities literally create some word or phrase or slogan that's meant to give a special expression to the unique experiences that we face as members of that community. And then those words receive uptake by the broader community mm -hmm. and then take on a different, sometimes antithetical meaning to what they were intended to originally do. So a really straightforward instance of this, one that I will not be discussing at that talk, is how Black Lives Matter has been co-opted by the right to become Blue Lives or All Lives Matter. And uh -huh. I think Blue Lives Matter is far more insidious actually than All Lives Matter, because uh, All Lives Matter sort of neutralizes the intonation behind Black Lives Matter. But Blue Lives Matter does something far, far uh, more dangerous. It captures the spirit and the linguistic structure of Black Lives Matter, but it's not subject to the same sort of penalties that Black Lives Matter has been subject to. And for me, that's the problem. So Black Lives Matter was a slogan created by three black women in response to the killing of Trayvon Martin in Florida in, I believe, 2012 by George Zimmerman. And until the summer, it was a hugely unpopular movement mm -hmm. among white Americans. And in mm -hmm. fact, within the last two to three weeks, we've seen support for Black Lives Matter decline once again. But what's funny is that Blue Lives Matter is actually hugely successful. They've managed to raise a ton of money. They've effectively gotten petitions, um, at least in Louisiana, to treat killing a police officer as a hate crime, which means that if you're a member of the KKK and you killed a black person, uh, your crime is treated the exact same as if you accidentally killed a police officer with no malice aforethought. Hmm. which we say was as comparable crimes. Mm -hmm. um, and so what I want to think about is the harm that's posed when we fail to recognize that 
just like culture, certain bits of language belong to certain communities and you just can't take those pieces of language. Interesting. Yeah. So, so I mean, I guess is the, is the problem there, I mean, I guess the problem there is not in the example you gave so much that affirming some notion of the value of um, the public safety officers or whatever, right? But it's more like the fact that a specific phrase that has a specific cultural and political purpose is just being repackaged for a different cause? Yes. Okay, right. Um, in particular, what I discuss um, in, in the paper on which this talk is based is that Miranda, so Miranda Fricker in her discussion of epistemic injustice talks about hermeneutical injustices. Mm -hmm. So uh, a phenomenon where you can't even understand a certain experience that you're having because the dominant and shared resources just don't, there, there's no space in them for your experience. So sexual harassment was like that, right? Mm -hmm. Prior to Car Carmita Wood in the 70s and, and those early sit-ins, there just was no term to describe what was happening. And so I'm especially concerned with what happens when a community develops a word to fill that lacuna, to fill that gap that was there before. And then that word that has this really special, highly specialized purpose and meaning then gets co-opted by people who use it against the originating group. Right. It, yeah. So, and is there, is there like an extra difficulty here just in terms of, I mean, I'm thinking about the way that appropriation works, right, in, in general. And when we have, um, I mean, the way we use social media now, right, and the way the information is distributed there and the way that things trend and kind of take off, I'm wondering, is there kind of like a, I mean, there's obviously no solution to that, right, that you could, you, you could offer us, but is that part of the issue, just kind of like the way that, it seems like social media is good for distributing information uh, very quickly, accessibility in many ways, but obviously it's highly decontextualized. Mm -hmm. right? You can be packaged in very specific ways. Do you think part of the process and the way this happens is actually connected to the way that we just communicate now? And it would not be as much of an issue if we were um, uh, not using um, kind of social media platforms as like a primary way to distribute information and understanding about social causes? Truthfully, I have not thought very much about how social media plays into that. But my suspicion is that social media probably worsens it, but it's always been around. Got you. Because I'm thinking in 2012, when Black Lives Matter was formed, social media was around, but it certainly wasn't like it is now, eight yeah. years later. And yet the, the overtaking of that slogan was still pretty swift. Right, right. Yeah, I know. Understood. I actually think what's happening is that very often we're saying something that the dominant communities just don't have the conceptual resources to make sense of. Does that, that kind of, does that come back to full circle to what we were talking about before with the yep. standpoint? Yes, so, so here's a question, right? I mean, to what extent do we hold groups responsible for making themselves aware of the issues, say that a marginalized group is facing? Um, because it seems like on the one hand, you could say that people are, depending on how you understand it, are lack responsibility for certain forms of ignorance about say prejudice and discrimination um, that are happening in our world because they haven't experienced it, right? Yes. Um, and that seems dangerous because um, it seems you also want required people, people to be able to work to try and understand kind of inequalities in the world, right? And, and actually help to try and resolve them. So how, do you, how does responsibility play into this for actually actively trying to understand, a, a, you know, apart from your particular view and, and the issue that you're talking about here? 
have to say, I think that's such a good and complex question that I will not have a great answer to. I, on the one hand, I'm inclined to think, well, I definitely think it, it's incumbent upon all of us to educate ourselves. Now, I know this is hard. Um, that's why I started with an example where I failed. I'm not making up the subway example. That really happened to me. I really just failed to see how the subway could be a hostile environment for someone with disabilities. Yeah. So when I'm talking with others, I always try to own my own shortcomings because I think it makes it easier for other people to admit their own wrongdoing because it, it doesn't make us bad people if we just didn't know better. It does make us bad people if something's brought to our attention and we just decide, well, I don't care. That's not my problem. Right. But I definitely think that to some extent, social media has made it slightly easier for people to learn about and be exposed to this information. But then it's also, as you pointed out, the case that there's just so much, especially now, disinformation on the internet that you're just as likely to stumble onto a bad Reddit page as you are onto a good black blog post about the black experience, you know, mm -hmm. in, in the academy, for instance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that definitely, definitely is complicating. Um, so I want to, I want to shift gears a little bit um, and think about, you know, so you, you do obviously, you know, really powerful work in philosophical scholarship and um, giving talks and publishing and writing, but you also do a lot of really kind of publicly engaged work with youth. And uh, you are founder and, and uh, uh, director of a program called Corrupt the Youth. Um, and I, I just wanted to kind of talk about that program a little bit. I mean, first of all, I imagine a lot of people don't know where the name comes from. And I'm wondering, you know, Corrupt the Youth is a really uh, great provocative name. And could, could you tell us a bit about how you chose that and, and where it came from? <laughs> yes, so first of all, I did have to add a byline to corrupt the youth because uh, we were getting some questions from parents about what the heck we were planning to do with their kids. Yeah, right, right. Uh, so our, our official byline is now continuing the Socratic tradition so that they know that there's some connection to something above and beyond corruption. Yes. Um, but yes, it's inspired by Socrates. So. For those who don't know, Socrates was sentenced to death and forced to drink hemlock on the charges of corrupting the youth. And by corrupting the youth, the Athenian nobleman just meant that Socrates had the audacity to go around and encourage the Athenian youth to ask questions about how power was accorded in Athens and who got to be powerful and was it ethical to have slaves and were there natural slaves. Uh, and surprise, the people in power did not like that. <laughs> and so they decided to off Socrates. And so the name is really like a throwback to that, to, to the idea that it's sort of our task, I, I think as philosophers, to place the youth in a position where they can challenge the established uh, order of power. Right, and, and so how have you found, I mean, in your, in your experience working with youth, um, how have you found their approach or their engagement with philosophical questions? I mean, is it um, uh, like an, an eagerness to engage, kind of uh, uh, trying to figure out what it is? I and mean, what's been your experience working with youth with philosophy? Yes, yeah, so we work, we work in Title I high schools, and the way it operates is we teach one or two classes a week. Those classes are usually 75 to 90 minutes long. And two volunteers will come in and lead each session. And it, it, there is a developed curriculum, so each session builds off the previous one. Each volunteer leaves notes about how the day went, so the person who comes the next time knows what happened. 
um, in the past, you know, the first two weeks are always a little shaky because the kids don't know who these new people are or what they're doing or if we're going to stay or if this is just like a fluke. But by week three, they're usually really, really into it and talking about it in other classes um, and giving their teachers hell because that's exactly what we encourage them to do, to nag their teachers about why they're doing what they're doing. <laughs> just love, let me tell you. Um, but one of the things that's unique about our program, and, and this is somewhat controversial about the program too, I know from skimming the Reddit boards, but we are a social justice based philosophy program. And that does not mean that we advocate for a particular view. My, my job is not to, nor is my interest to indoctrinate these kids. They leave with a variety of positions, some of which I disagree with. All I really care about is can they see how these issues, these philosophical issues and concepts play out in the real world and can make their lives better by enabling them to critique points of view that they agree or disagree with. So when we teach social construction, we don't just have them read something abstract. We have them start by thinking about, okay, what are men supposed to be like? What are women supposed to be like? Okay, who said that they had to be that way? Are you a bad man because you don't conform to this list of traits that you just gave me? And so bringing it back to how are you policing your own behavior? How is your behavior policed by society? What expectations are projected onto you? Are those fair? Um, the laws that govern your school, are those just? Were they designed to be in your interest or to be in someone else's? Um, mostly what our kids have expressed is that they like philosophy because we're not telling them what to think. We're allowing them to explore in a safe space what it is that they think and then giving them the tools to work through what they think. Yeah, that, so that's, I mean, that's great. I mean, that really, it, it, it very much resonates with my experience too in, in, in doing philosophical work with kids and adolescents, but also other contexts too. I mean, I, I think part of what, and it kind of comes full circle to what we started talking about, about people's pathways to philosophy, is you know, this idea that philosophy is part of the human condition, right? I mean, asking questions, critical questions about your world and yourself, your identity, your beliefs, your values, it's not something that just professional philosophers do, right? But people don't often think of it as philosophy, but kids do that too. Maybe even more than most people in our society, right? They, they like to ask questions. They are curious persons, right, by and large. Um, and so it's, I think, you know, programs like yours, and particularly the social justice dimension of your program, I find really, really important and kind of, I won't nerd out on the philosophy for children work too much here, but I've spent a lot of time writing and thinking about it. But that, that, that angle has been really not completely absent, but, but certainly lacking in, in many areas. So I think I really applaud you for that work. It's, it's really vital and important. Um, but a question I want to ask you, and this came out of an article I read about you recently in um, Guernica online magazine, uh, I think called How to Corrupt the Youth. Uh, definitely recommend our readers check that out. It's a great profile piece on, on Dr. Tool and the program. Really interesting. But towards the end of that article, one of the things that I think you said or the author said was, and it's what, I mean, think about what happened to Socrates, right? I mean, he questioned a lot and ended up losing his life for it, right? And you talked about the, the idea of empowering um, or affirming children's and adolescents' desire to question and think critically about their world, which on the one hand, we think is really important, but on the other hand, in certain contexts can actually endanger them, right? And so how do you think about that tension in your work? I mean, it seems like, you don't want to give up the questioning, but as you gestured in that article, it can maybe lead to problems for kids and adolescents in their home or their society or going forward. How do you think about that tension in your work? 
Yes, I, yes, I do recall the part you're mentioning in that profile. And the truth is I do really worry about that because not every kid is going to find themselves in an environment where their critiques are welcomed or invited or understood. Mm -hmm. But uh, again, with that piece of advice, right, that you asked me to give, the things I can control and the things I can't control. And I can't control where they go or what happens to them once they leave the program. But what I can control is, as long as they're in the program, making sure that we're actually doing what's right by them as educators. And so that's not just informed by my point of view about what philosophy is, but about how American education ought to work. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you know, but I did teach for America for two yes. years before I came to grad school. And so I too think, um, and I married an educator, <laughs> uh, and so I think a lot about how education actually functions and how it ought to function. Right. Um, and there's this book, I'm going to forget the author, but the name of the book is Literacy with an Attitude. And there's a chapter in this book called A, Distinctly, a Distinctively Un-American Idea, and it talks about how you can actually break schools up by classes. So you have executive elite schools, which are like the upper crust sort of boarding schools in the Swiss Alps and in New York. And then you've got your affluent, but not super rich schools. And you've got middle class and working class. So I went to a working class school. Mm -hmm. um, and what I can say from first personal experience, but also reading this book, is that if you're in a working class school, you don't learn how to think critically because that's not what you're supposed to. That's not what those schools are preparing you to do in the world. Mm -hmm. You learn how to shut up and take orders. Right. Listen to what your authorities say, not to talk back, not to question things. And then you go into the world and you're a good little worker. Um, and I just think that's fundamentally unjust, which is why we prioritize working in Title I schools and especially giving those kids the powers, the power to talk back, to push back, to resist. Yeah. Because I just don't think that they ought to be condemned to a certain life or a certain class because they happen to end up in the wrong kind of school. Yeah. I think it's wrong that there's a wrong kind of school at all. Um, and so it's like I, I'm willing to do a little something a little dangerous now as opposed to avoid something worse later on. Understood. Yeah, and it was said. And are there, what are kind of some future ambitions for the program? Do you have kind of plans moving forward? Uh, uh, I know you, I always see a lot of interesting stuff on your website, um, but any highlights? Yes, well, so <laughs> this would have been, I think, our fifth year in schools this past spring, but then COVID happened, and so our fifth year did not happen either. And so we've been exploring new ways of delivering content uh, with that in mind. And so the thing we've been working on lately is our digital media initiative, which just brings philosophy and the humanities generally into people's homes in ways that are like digestible and bite-sized. So for instance, we released a really short two minute video over the summer about two views of police brutality and just like how people might approach police brutality differently. And, and to do so, we use the idea of the uh, blue and black slash white and gold dress. Mm -hmm. um, we are also working currently on two new videos about whether or not you're obligated to follow unjust laws. Interesting. Uh, and so it's, it's set up as this debate between a brother and sister who are both black, but one thinks you have to follow the law no matter what, and another thinks, eh, you don't have to follow unjust laws. And so trying to mirror how these conversations could happen in the real world if you were like at home with your uncles for Thanksgiving dinner. Mm -hmm. um, 
we're, we're planning to halt growth for now because I really want to focus on cultivating our existing chapters. But as far as like our 10 years down the road, big picture aspirations, wink, wink to all of the rich people out there listening who are looking for something to donate to, I would love to offer a free summer camp every summer. So we did one in 2019. We had 19 students. It was completely free for the kids. They lived on campus for two weeks. Their meals were provided. Transportation was provided. Everything was taken care of. And you could really see how transform, like I hate using that kind of language. It's TFA language, but you could, you could see what a transformative experience it was for them. Um, and we had so many students who are, who are in college at UT now who have since written to say, yeah, I don't think I could have done this without being in your program first. And I just think that like, imagine if you could do that every summer for more than 20 kids. Right. That's it. No, it's, it's, it, I, I'm totally with you on that. Um, I think transformative, although I hear the reservations about the word, but actually at the same time, it's a good one. It's true. I mean, um, I've seen that with the growth of these programs and, and including yours. And, and also, I mean, the, the, the kind of the growth of philosophy summer camps, which is kind of amazing. I mean, there's more and more popping up, but um, it makes me think maybe we should do an entire show actually on these uh, philosophy outreach programs, honestly, because there's a lot of really cool things happening. But um, for those who want to learn more about your program, Brianna, and also for the rich people listening who want to donate millions of dollars, um, where, where can, where's the, what's the website they can go to? So the best place to start is corrupttheyouth.org. So you'll find there information about the summer program we ran last summer, our existing chapters, and the digital media initiative. Fantastic. So as per tradition with the Ethicist Corner, uh, uh, Brianna, we have five short questions for you, and these are questions as part of our lightning round, which we like to let our listeners get to know you a little bit better. Um, so I'll just jump right into it. So the, the, the first question is, uh, if you were stranded on an island today and could have one book with you, which would it be and why? Only one book? It's only one book uh, uh, for, this, uh, for this, this day. I'm inclined to say something from the Game of Thrones series because those are so rich that even with just one book, you have a lot that you can imagine if you're isolated on an island. So I think I'm going to go with one of those five books. Got you. Awesome. Uh, if you could have dinner with any two people, past or present, who would they be and why? Frederick Douglass and Christopher Columbus. Imagine the two of those at dinner together. I think Frederick Douglass would destroy Chris Columbus and I would want to have a front row seat at that. Yeah, no, I agree. I think Frederick Douglass would, uh, would, would win that debate um, for sure. Good, good choices, good choices. Um, what is one fact that, uh, or fun, what is one fun fact that few people know about you? Oh, I guess I have a lot of guilty pleasures, but the big one is I love bad TV. Not like Kim Kardashian, keeping up with those folks kind of bad, but like Grey's Anatomy, soap opera, really just tons of nonsense, makes no logical sense kind of shows. Any current, uh, currently uh, bad TV show that you're, you're into, or you like to go back to the oldies? I'm definitely, there are 15 seasons of Grey's Anatomy, so I am only on season eight right now. I think it's going to take me another six months to finish the rest of the series, but I was definitely cycling through Shonda Rhimes's material when the pandemic hit. So I started with Scandal, then How to Get Away with Murder, and now I'm back to the OG 
rhymes. Uh, got you. Got you. Nice. So this will continue this, uh, the the viewing theme. Um, what is the best movie you've watched in quarantine? Oh, Shirley with Elizabeth Moss. It's based on um, what is her name? The woman who wrote the lottery, Shirley Jackson. I think is it. Huh. Okay. I had not heard about that one. That's but good. It's sort of a reimagined uh, audio bibliographical film about her life. It's very cool. And Elizabeth nice. Moss does a beautiful job acting. Uh, yeah, she's great. Her. Nice. Um, okay. And last but not least, what is, what is one of the best pieces of advice you've received in your life? That's a tough one. Like me around questions are hard. <laughs> <laughs> um, the best piece of advice I've ever been given I honestly just don't know. Or like one, one, one good piece of advice, not necessarily the best of all time. Don't let other people get you down, I suppose. Seems really basic, but now more than ever <laughs> seems really useful just to not let, there's another way of expressing it, you know, don't let people steal your joy. Yeah. So really, I think I have found that super helpful during the pandemic just to think, about the fact that there's so much right now that's outside of our control. So to focus instead on the things I can make a difference over and impact. So not letting the things I can't control get in my way or negatively impact me. It's like a super valuable lesson for right now. Amen to that. Yeah, that is, that is good advice. Um, that might be the best advice I've ever received in my life, actually. Uh, well, thanks so much for being with us uh, for talking to us about your work. Um, it's been really, really fun. And we're super excited uh, to host you on October 15th at 6 p.m. Pacific. Everybody, everybody around the world is invited to join us. It's completely open access. So we're, we're looking forward to it. But thanks again. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Ethicist Corner podcast, a production of the Kegley Institute of Ethics. To hear future episodes, follow us on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or iHeartRadio. Please join us on Thursday, October 15th at 6 p.m. Pacific time for Dr. Brianna Tool's Kegley Institute lecture, You Took the Words Right Out of My Mouth, Why Some Words Don't Belong to You. This lecture is free and open to the public via Zoom. You can find the Zoom link at www.csub.edu slash KIE or on KIE social media.